We're continuing our uh, study through the book of Acts. Uh, so we took a little bit of a, a hiatus during the month of December, but now we're back picking up where we left off in Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading this morning verses 13 through uh, 52. It's a lengthy passage, and so if you prefer to remain seated uh, as we read together, that, that's, that's fine. But if you're able, uh, would you stand with me as we read this morning from God's Word? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Uh, Pay careful attention. This is God's word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man 
forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that you would lead us, that your Holy Spirit would illumine this word to our hearts, give us understanding and give us faith to believe it and to receive it in our hearts. And we pray that you would help us also to practice it in our lives. Lord, in all things, would you help us to see Jesus? For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, everyone is looking for good news uh, all the time, but particularly this time of year, it seems as uh, all the news outlets, newspapers, magazines, etc., begin to evaluate all the events of the previous year uh, and look ahead to the next. Everybody always seems to be looking for some some glimmer of light in the midst of darkness, some some good news in the midst of hard and often bad news. And this year is certainly no different. People are longing for joy in the midst of hardship. They're looking for good news. As the early Christians spread out from Jerusalem and began to go to different parts of the Roman Empire and share the message of Jesus, they summarized that message in the same way that Jesus did. Good news. They were heralds of salvation that had been accomplished by Christ. And they were announcing what Jesus had done for all to hear and to receive. They were announcing good news. As we read here in this story, the continuing story of Acts, Paul and Barnabas have left the island of Cyprus, Barnabas' hometown. They've gone back to the mainland here, what we would call kind of modern-day southern Turkey. Uh, and they've gone up to this city of Antioch in the southern region of Galatia. It's called Pisidian Antioch because there's another Antioch near uh, closer to Jerusalem. 
But as they gather here, uh, they, they enter into a synagogue, which was their, their practice, and they're asked to share a word of exhortation, which Paul does, and which he summarizes in the same way as good news. It's the same message again and again and again, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. This morning, what I'd like for us to do is to look at four things about this good news that we find uh, in Paul's sermon in particular. This is the first uh, recorded sermon that we have from Paul, and you probably picked up very uh, many similarities between what Paul says and what Peter said earlier in the book, uh, with, with a little bit of different emphasis perhaps from Paul. Uh, but let's look at four things that we see about the good news from this passage. First, we see that the gospel, the, the good news, the gospel is rooted in history. The good news is historically rooted. Uh, you notice in the beginning of Paul's message, as, as the leaders of the synagogue have asked him to, to share something, maybe based on the readings that had just been completed in the synagogue service, that Paul begins by recounting the history of God's people. This was pretty standard fare. He goes all the way back to Abraham. He doesn't mention Abraham specifically at the beginning, but he talks about God's choosing their forefathers, bringing them into Egypt, having them settle there and and multiply in Egypt, and then with a mighty hand bringing them out of Egypt through the Exodus. He covers about a thousand years in just a couple of verses, all the way from Abraham up to David being chosen as king. And notice he says in verse 23, after leading this history up through David, a man after God's own heart, says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, David, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. The gospel is rooted in history. God is at work in human history. He has been at work throughout history, carrying out this plan of redemption through Israel and then through Israel to all of the world. Now, why is this important that we believe and affirm that the gospel is rooted in history? Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, just a reminder that the good news about Jesus is not the result of simply religious experience. Uh, Many might be tempted to say that, that people believe things about the Bible or about Jesus because they've had some sort of experience, and that that experience forms the basis of what they believe. But notice Paul does not start with religious experience. He doesn't start with his own story. Sometimes he he tells his own story. He starts with concrete, objective reality, history. God did these things in space and time, and all of this history led up to the offspring of David, Jesus Christ. The good news is rooted in history, not in religious experience. It's objective. It's real. It happened. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it happened in history. The gospel is rooted in history. The gospel is also not rooted in, similarly, our felt needs. Oftentimes, uh, and particularly today, kind of the the broader culture uh, believes that what's true is determined by inner feelings, desires, or subjective experience. And as we come to Paul's sermon, I think it's a helpful reminder to us that truth, 
what happened, what's real, what's, what's reality, is not determined by what we desire on the inside. Rather, we're supposed to conform our desires to what's true. Uh, we live in an age where all of that is kind of flip-flopped. And so people don't want to talk about truth being something out there and objective and concrete that I need to conform my life to. Rather, we seek to mold and shape and conform truth to the things that I desire on the inside. And, and yet scripture reminds us here that the good news is actually rooted in concrete, objective history, not in our felt needs. I remember talking to a cousin uh, of mine years ago. Uh, she, she now is a, a follower of Christ, but at the time uh, she wasn't. And when we were having a conversation about just life and, and difficult things that were going on, and, and I was trying to encourage her uh, learn about Jesus. And where, where does Jesus fit into all these things that you're dealing with? And, uh, you know, Jesus really came and really died and really rose again. And there's really peace that you can find through faith in Jesus in the midst of all the turmoil of life. And, and her response to that was, that's, that's good for you. That, that works for you. I find peace through yoga. And she was uh, very much involved in that in, in a kind of a religious way. And so her approach to it was not, this is true, therefore I should believe it. Her approach to it was, I have subjective feelings of peace when I do this particular practice, and that's what determines what's true for me. Paul starts with this historical outline. God did these things in history for Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. He made a promise to David that one of David's descendants would be on his throne forever. And it's from David that God has now brought to us, to Israel, a Savior, Jesus. Our hope, in other words, is anchored in God's plan and God's work unfolded in real history. Not a myth not simply religious experience, not simply determined by my felt needs and, and what brings me some sort of inner peace. But God really brought Jesus. Jesus really was born. Jesus really did go to a cross. He really was born in Bethlehem of David's line. He, he really died. He really rose again in history. And if, that, if that's true, then that means we have a hope that is anchored in concrete reality outside of us. It's not dependent on what we feel or how strongly we believe it. It's true because God has been at work in history. The gospel is rooted in history. But notice this is not just a kind of a bare history of one event happening after another. It's history that's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's history that's the fulfillment of, of prophecy. Notice as Paul kind of continues through this sermon, he talks about uh, the leaders in Jerusalem fulfilling prophecy because they didn't understand it. They fulfilled it by condemning Jesus. But God raised Jesus from the dead and that the resurrection, not just the death of Jesus, but the resurrection itself is the fulfillment of promises that God made to his people. He quotes from three different passages of scripture to show God promised, prophesied the resurrection of Jesus long before it happened. Notice in verse 33, quotes from Psalm 2, a Psalm of David, you are my son, today I have begotten you, a promise of the resurrection of the Messiah. In verse 34, he quotes from Isaiah 55, confirming 
that he will keep his promise to David, that there will always be, uh, that there will be a king who reigns forever from David's line. I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then again from Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And he goes on to show that this prophecy is fulfilled not by David, but by Jesus. David died. David was buried in a tomb. David's body saw corruption. If they knew where David was buried, they could go to the tomb, they could take out his bones, and they would see that David had died and that his bones were still buried there. But not so with Jesus. Jesus had risen from the dead. His body did not see corruption. Now think about this for just a moment. Put yourself kind of in their shoes. This is maybe roughly... 13, 14 years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is a Jewish synagogue, and so there's lots of connections among the synagogues. Even this part of the Roman Empire, there would have been connections back to Jerusalem, maybe loose connections. But, but they could have said, wait a minute, you're saying that this guy died and that he came back to life. That doesn't happen. Dead people stay dead. They don't come back for life. We're going we're gonna to figure out how to confirm or deny this. We're going to write some letters. We're going to get somebody in Jerusalem to go find the body of Jesus. You know what? You, you find the body of Jesus, then Paul says, if, if Jesus is not raised, then we're all fools. And we're all, we're all hopeless. Because if Jesus is still dead, then we are all still stuck in our sin and there is no forgiveness. This was kind of a, a verifiable fact. They could, they could have gone. They could have found out. They could have investigated, and they would not have been able to produce the body of Jesus because Jesus' death and his resurrection were the fulfillment of prophecy, that he would die and he would rise again. Now, now here's the thing you need to understand. The promise of Jesus is not, in the Old Testament, is not just limited to these, these uh, kind of random prophecies about the Messiah dying and rising again. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 3, a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would redeem God's people. Genesis 12, that through Abraham's family, the whole world would be blessed through one of his descendants. Genesis 49, that the specific descendant of Abraham through whom this redeemer would come, this king would come through the line of Judah that the scepter would not depart from Judah. There's all throughout the Old Testament these promises of the Savior who would come and redeem his people, and Jesus fulfills that to the the most uh, specific detail. And and once you see it, it's one of those things that you can't unsee. It's kind of like, you know, when you buy it, when you get a new car or a car that's new to you, uh, and, and all of a sudden you start driving around, and you're like, oh, I see my car everywhere now. I didn't realize all these people also drove the same car uh, that I have. It's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see Jesus promised and prophesied in the Old Testament in one place, it all just kind of, the lights start to come on all over the place as you see, particularly in the New Testament, how he fulfills all of the promises. All, all of the shadows find their fulfillment in the reality of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. But the religious leaders didn't understand. Uh, They did not have eyes to see and understand that Christ was the fulfillment of these promises, and so they they killed him. 
themselves bringing about the fulfillment of prophecy through their own betrayal of Jesus and putting him to death. But God raised him from the dead. And Paul points to this, the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the heart of the good news, that there is forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his name for all who believe in Jesus. Notice what Paul says as he kind of brings his sermon to a point in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed, or literally justified, declared righteous from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. The gospel is historically rooted. The gospel is the fulfillment of promises, prophecies made hundreds of years, even thousands of years before Jesus came. And the gospel is the only place where we can find forgiveness of our sins and freedom through faith in the name of Jesus. Through faith in the name of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is the source of all joy in the Christian life. The knowledge that the holy, eternal, just, and righteous God has looked at us and seen our sins and has chosen in mercy and grace to wash them away, to never bring them back up against us, as if he tied them to a millstone and dropped it into the ocean so that it sinks to the bottom, never to rise up again. Having nailed our transgressions to the cross so that they died with Jesus, so that when he rose again from the dead, they are completely washed away, and he chooses to remember them against us no more. Forgiveness of sins is the most wonderful blessing And Paul says here that there's only one way to receive that blessing, through faith in the name of Jesus. And notice what he contrasts faith in Jesus with. He says in verse 38 that forgiveness is proclaimed to you and that everyone who believes is justified, counted righteous from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. You cannot be forgiven, in other words, of your sins through moral effort. I think that's what, part of what Paul is getting at. And, and the, the reason he says that is not because the law of Moses was, was bad. It's God's law. It's good. It's the best law. The reason he's saying that there's forgiveness and freedom and righteousness found only through faith in Jesus and not through the law is because the law was never intended to bring us forgiveness of sins. The law was never intended to be the source of our righteousness before God. If if you're a sinner, which you all are, and, and I am too, then you can't work hard enough to cover over your sin with perfect righteousness. You can't do enough good to outweigh your sin so that your sin is ignored or washed away or not not paid attention to in some way. You can't do it. Your problem, the problem of sin is so deep, so deeply rooted in our hearts that the only way we can be forgiven, the only way we can be acceptable before God with righteousness covering over all of our sin, the only way is through the work of Jesus Christ. Rooted in history, promised 
long ago and fulfilled through his righteousness, through his death, through his resurrection from the dead. The good news is salvation has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can say and why we can say today that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. It's a done deal. It's offered to all who put their faith in Jesus. You you can't get to the forgiveness of sins through moral effort, through working hard enough. Showing up at church is not the basis of your forgiveness. Reading your Bible, reading through it even in a year, reading it twice in a year, even that. It's not the basis of the forgiveness of your sins or of your righteousness. We need Jesus. Paul says that in Jesus there is righteousness and forgiveness only through faith in his name. Forgiveness of sins is a source of all joy and all blessing, and it comes through faith in Jesus. This message, Christ died, Christ rose again from the dead, is the fulfillment of prophecy, and the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all who believe in his name. This message of the gospel, this good news, demands a response. There always is this dual response to the gospel, in, particularly in the book of Acts, and even, even today. Some people receive it, and there's joy, there's freedom, they feel like burdens have been lifted, they've been brought out of darkness and into light, uh, they're no longer a slave to sin, but now a servant to God and to righteousness, they find joy and peace in an increase of grace in the Holy Spirit and through Jesus That's a wonderful response to the gospel, but it's not the only response. Some people respond with indifference. Some people respond with uh, outright hostility towards it, as we see in in this particular story. They don't want to hear it. it. It messes up their own view of what makes them righteous, of where their hope is. Uh, they, they don't want to be, people don't want to be told that they need Jesus to save them sometimes. They, they want to hear that they can do it themselves. We all struggle with that. But it's, it's good news that demands a response. Paul called them, I call you to respond in faith, knowing that faith in Jesus is the way that there is forgiveness and righteousness, that it's guaranteed for all who believe. But notice Paul also issued a warning to those who were listening to him. And it's, it's a pointed warning. These were the people who every Sabbath, every Saturday as they gathered at the synagogue, they heard the word of God read. They heard the prophets. They heard the prophecies of the coming Savior. They heard the warnings not to reject, not to neglect God's offer of salvation. They, they heard this week in and week out and, and Paul said, even the guys in Jerusalem, they heard it every Sabbath. They heard the prophecies every Sabbath, and they still rejected Jesus and turned him over to a cross. And so there's this warning. Don't scoff at the astounding work of salvation that God has worked for you in Jesus. Here we are. It's not, I think, ironic uh, that here we are. We hear the word of God every Sunday. You hear the scriptures read, you hear the scriptures explained, maybe you're reading the scriptures for yourselves over and over again, you're hearing the good news that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again, that there's forgiveness of sins through faith in his name. You have the same privileges 
that Paul's audience had in that day, except even fuller, because you've, you've got the whole picture of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. The gospel demands a response. Be careful that your response is not one of indifference, not one of, of over-familiarity with, with Jesus, and maybe just a neglect of, of who he is and what he's done for you that results in a neglect of, of faith in your own life. The gospel demands a response, and the response is that of faith. Now, consider this. This is uh, something Tim Keller, um, retired pastor in the PCA, wrote recently. He said, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Part of what he's saying there is what, what Paul is getting at, same thing. If Jesus rose from the dead, if that's true, and it is, then, then we, we have to respond to that. We have to respond to this historical reality that God raised Jesus from the dead as the only Savior for sinners. You've heard the good news. You've heard how Jesus' gospel is rooted in history, how he really died, how he really rose again, how his work is the fulfillment of ancient promises, David's son risen from the dead, the King of kings and the only one through whom forgiveness of sins can be found. Don't respond to that by thinking that you just need to work a little harder to get right with God. He's done it all, and he's done it for all who will believe in the name of Jesus. Don't be like those in the prophet's warning who scoffed at the amazing work God did and perished on account of it. Rather, see the amazing work of God in Jesus and believe that it's for you. And if you do that, if that's where you are this morning, then know that forgiveness of sins and righteousness is yours, secured because Jesus Christ has won it for you. If you found forgiveness and freedom in Jesus, then you can have confidence because God's work has been displayed in history, fulfilling all of his promises in Christ, and he's given it to you all through faith. It's not up to you. It's not dependent on your work. It's dependent upon the work of Jesus, which he has accomplished. It's ours to receive. So you can have confidence in Jesus. And if you've received that good news, then remember the good news is meant to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed, to, given, to be given to others that they might also receive and believe what Christ has done for them. And so may the Lord do that in our hearts today.